It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're very welcome to Thursday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. I'm just watching the television screens here in studio and the Doyle Committee is in session uh, grilling the people from RTE. It's just over two weeks since the Ryan Tuberty story broke and it certainly has captured the headlines every day since in this country. And then uh, the BBC in Bother 2 and Revelation yesterday evening that it was uh, Hugh Edwards was the presenter on the BBC at the centre of the controversy over there. His wife issuing a statement last evening as the six o'clock news came on. I was watching it and I have to put my cards on the table. We're big fans of television at home, both RTE and BBC. And Hugh Edwards in our house is just uh, a man you would trust and admire and have watched for years delivering the news, the big stories. And I can tell you there was a sense of Real disappointment and sorrow when his name was announced. Now, we're going to talk about it for the next while, both on the uh, Tuberty side and with uh, Hugh Edwards as well, in the company of communications consultant Orla Carmody. Thank you for joining me, Orla, today. Hello, Jerry. Lovely to be on with you. Well, Orla, I have to say, in our house, that was the feeling last night. And I went for me Wednesday pint. They always know I enjoy me Wednesday pint. And the landlady, Margaret, when I walked in, the first thing she said to me, Oh, Jerry, Hugh Edwards, can you believe it? I'm so devastated. You know what I'm talking about, Orla, that feeling? Yeah, I think we're heartbroken for him, where there's a very different range of feelings with the whole RTE tobacco. Mm. Hugh Edwards is somebody who is loved. That lovely Welsh accent of his, I mean, you could just listen to it all day. You know what a solid, trusted, safe pair of hands he is there in the BBC. He joined the BBC in 1984 when he was only a gossoon and worked his way up through very quickly through the ranks, becoming a political correspondent. And then, obviously, uh, the, the, the different news programmes, the evening programme and the, and the daytime programme. You know, he, he has been through the ranks there for so long. The six o'clock news, the news at 10. Mm. Um, and that safe pair of hands, the person they always trust, as you say, when there's a solemn occasion, all of the royal palaver, the coronations yeah. and the funerals. We, we can just hear his voice solemnly telling us what's going on and it is so reliable. But the whole point of trust is that it's based on, you know, the Irish press headline years ago or the strap line was the truth in the news. You yes. know, it's about truth. And in in, in the current day and age with, with social media, and we scroll through so much rubbish, all of us, and we don't know whether it is actually true or not. And then you hear that voice and it's the BBC and it, oh, it must be true because it's on the BBC. Yeah. And that's the trust piece. And, mm. But I think we're heartbroken for him. It's such a personal tragedy and, you know, it's a difficult one and his mental health and oh, it, it's very sad. It really is very sad, and and it's true what you say. You you somebody becomes a friend. You know what I'm saying, Orla. You you look at them. You never meet them, but they're your friend. You feel you know them yes. so well, and yes. you know all their little expressions and their facial tics and all of the things they say. And you watch it nightly. You bring them into their home in your home. You mm. you turn on your TV and you invite you into your home at 10 o'clock and yes. you know that's a very personal thing to have them in your living room with you every evening or, mm. or however you watch and that's that's the piece that we, we, we question and to think that this was going on in the background but you know in crisis management terms we always say you know tell the truth tell it all, tell mm. it now tell it yourself and his wife coming out was 
very strong and very much controlling the agenda and that's a really wonderful thing to do and there's been a lot of sympathy for her a lot of people texting her and supporting her uh, how it was the right thing to do and she was trying to protect herself and her family and you can imagine a couple like that married for many years five young adult children you know at the age now in their 20s where they'd be very protective of their dad and how they would be suffering because of this and in an interview with um, Hugh Edwards a number of years ago, when he discussed his mental health that he suffered with over 20 years very strongly, and he said his daughter often says to him, one of his daughters, how are you upstairs today, Dad? Mm. And what a lovely, lovely thing to say for a young woman, you know, mm. minding her dad. So whatever demons he has been facing over those years and the pressures of a role that is, is, is highly pressurised. And indeed, in another interview some time back, he did say he was going to look to wind down. He's 61 and finds the pressure of the role. Maybe he was beginning, you know, and, and some people let off steam by running and some people let off steam by hitting the bottle and some people let off steam. Mm. And whatever he did, you know, not questioning or commenting on it one way or another. But again, you feel nothing but just sympathy for him and admiration for his wife for taking control of the agenda in the best way she could and asking for privacy for yeah, him. Yeah, and I, I th- we think of them today, his wife and his children, as you say there, and, and what they're going through. Look, there's nothing to beat a sex scandal, you know, when it comes to newspapers, yeah. uh, radio, television, or, or whatever. And this first appeared in the newspapers. I want to talk for a second about his colleagues. Because, you know, a week... Now, she took control yesterday evening, but it's taken a number of days. But obviously, I watched Sophie Rayworth last night on the news and the others, and they were visibly shocked. But they've known the name. Nothing could be said for a number of days. What about the position they were left in and how they feel now? I would imagine, again, shock and, um, you know, obviously, as the BBC over the last few days have gone through the allegations and trying to find out was there any veracity in them and there seems to have been a police involvement and Mm. that no, there isn't, maybe. And I, I feel they must have known it was a bit of a questionable situation that his name wasn't released early on. If they were sure that this person had done some wrong, the name would have been released, I would imagine, earlier. But then even when it was announced on the BBC News who it was, um, you know, there was no picture of Hugh put up. There was no screenshot of him. There was nothing like that. It was just an in-studio comment and it was done with kind of hushed tones. And it was, you know, you could see his colleagues were were, were shocked by mm. it, but there wouldn't be anything like the anger we're seeing this side of the water. You know, it would have been obviously shock and concern, I would imagine, concern for their colleague. Once the danger that there was any wrongdoing or, or any young person compromised in any way, and once that seemed to have been maybe mitigated to some extent, then you could see their, their primary uh, feeling, I would imagine, would have been concern for mm. a very well-loved colleague. Mm. And I just see as well, uh, since there's talk now that there are junior members of staff, some uh, still working at the BBC, some have left, who, you know, could have perhaps complained about his behaviour. But look, at that's a, a rolling story and that'll develop over the next com- com- uh, over the coming days. But look, at uh, it's still a live situation. Um, how do you go then, you know, Fake news, don't have to remind you, that fell on the other side of the Atlantic and started this whole thing. And that's a big danger to the world today. As you said, it's hard to decipher a lot of stuff. But when you have somebody in power saying that everything is nearly fake, that that's out there, this doesn't all go well. How do you restore trust and confidence? And how do you, you know, people who feel let down today, disappointed, sad for him, you know what I'm talking about? How do, How is that ground regained? In the BBC context, yes, it yes, is, I suppose, yes. about, um, well, I mean, obviously, he's he's in hospital, the poor mm, man, and mm. will be, according to his wife, safe and for the foreseeable future. So clearly, you, you move it off the air as quickly as possible. Right. Um, obviously, um, at this point, there, there's probably no piece to add to this story until mm. these investigations or the allegations are, are investigated thoroughly. And it seems the BBC moved very fast on that and seemed to have gone into them or, or made the inquiries as quickly as they possibly could. So I, I don't think there is much to be done now until there is some subsequent report okay. from the BBC on the findings of their investigation. Mm-hmm. Now, bringing it back home, as I said, I'm watching the pictures as I talk to you here and RTE are in at the public accounts today or whatever committee there in Thal Aaron and the Ryan Tuberty story rolls on. Um, you know, a different angle altogether. You're talking about money and people taking cuts at the time and, uh, you know, money's not known about. 
How do you rate, you know, from your vast experience, where does this stand on the continuum of scandals, you know? This is um, seismic, I think. I think it is seismic for RTE. Um, when we have previously looked at stories involving RTE where a journalist has got a story wrong and we think of the Mission to Pray story where they accused a priest of wrongdoing and it was found to be wrong, it's more over-enthusiastic or misguided journalism or whatever way you want to put it, mm. getting it wrong and then having to do the mop-up operation afterwards and pay reparation to whoever has been uh, damaged. But there, we've never had this before, that at the heart of management of the organisation, there was, if not wrongdoing or, or, or anything criminal, there was something morally or, you know, culturally very, very rotten at the core of all of this. And I think that's why it is so seismic. And there have been discussions, you know, rumbling on for many years about is RTE currently fit for purpose in the sense that we've discussed that social media news used to be at six o'clock and nine o'clock news is now now is this minute it's out on social media and is the silence size and scale of an operation like RTE based on the BBC as we've been discussing designed on a 50s 60s model where you had numbers of stations and you've orchestras and you've the RTE guide and you've 2FM and you've so many branches to this big organisation, is it actually fit for purpose? And and does this prove to us that they lost sight of good quality journalism, which should have been the heart and soul of it? There was a an RTE um, news editor when I was in the RTE newsroom many years ago called Rory O'Connor, a famed Kerry man. And when talent, as they now describe it, and that's a bit of an offensive term, but when anybody kind of lost the run of themselves slightly because they'd been a, their face had been on the box and they were beginning <laughs> to feel that they were worth more money and they would go to, to Rory looking for um, a pay rise, he would say you could put a dog barking on the nine o'clock news and they'd watch it. They're not watching you, they're watching the news. And he would send the person scuttling out with their tail between their legs. And Orti has lost sight of that, that it's about good people doing their job. It's not about, you know, talent and being stars. Like, we're not a big area. We're not a big country. Mm. I, you know, it's, we're nearly too small to have people on our national broadcaster paying out of the public purse considering themselves stars, you know, and unfortunately yes. that that's where it has gone in recent times. And that's what we're seeing today and in the last few weeks, and this is nearly the third week of this, isn't it? Mm. Like it's just, this is all unravelling. This whole way that the culture of Vorti has developed over the last number of years is just unravelling. And they've left themselves wide open to conversations like Kevin Backhurst, the new DG, is being asked today, would he consider selling off Montrose because it's such prime real estate and you know you can run a modern television station out of a shed somewhere on an industrial park. Yeah. Is that what's where RT has got to go um, mm. to, to be fit for purpose? We don't know. And, you know, in some ways Montrose is so symbolic and the the, the, the mass there, we drive drove by it. I, I used to cycle by it when I was a child myself and say, someday I'll work in there, you know. And, and you did. I did. <laughs> I did, exactly. It did. So it is, it's very symbolic. But yes. Say, and it's very part, you know, the, the national broadcaster is the keeper of the cultural reference, you know, yes. how we see ourselves and how it reflects mm. us. And, and, you know, that is a big task. And does that merit all of the... The, the trappings that was allowed evolve around RTE. That's a big discussion, mm. or should it be paired back? But unfortunately, that conversation has now completely escalated because yes. of this, I believe. Now, I have four things on my notes here that I want to quickly run through with you because yes. I think they're uh, very important and listeners would like to hear your opinion on them. The public uh, versus uh, commercial funding, uh, the combination of both in RTE, will that continue that model? Possibly in, to some extent, but I would say very scaled down or much more controlled. Again, we heard this morning Kevin Backer being asked, would uh, he agree to the oversight of the finances by the Comptroller and Auditor General? And he said yes, if it restored faith. So I think that would be a big move, as in a much tighter control. Mm. Maybe there was just too much independence around all that commercial generation of funds and where we saw, the, you know, that whole account set up in the UK, you know, to, 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 to cover bartering. You know, every radio station and LMFM would be no different does contra deals. We know that it's, it's part of it. Once it's out in the open, once it's written in the contract, once everybody knows yes. you're getting this and you're giving that, there's nothing wrong with the contra deal. 
but to see how that was used, you mm. know, that a separate account by the agent Noel Kelly was used to invoice a, a company in the UK to be paid in a round or like that is just extraordinary yes. that that was allowed to develop and happen. Yes, absolutely. The licence, will it continue? Do you see that changing? Uh, because of you mentioned the way journalism has changed and news is now and all the other devices besides where we are today, television, etc. Do you see the licence being retained or is there a, a, will there be a move towards a, a stopping us at source perhaps for like the property tax? I would encourage people to please pay their license fee. Don't not pay your license fee in protest because the only person, people you're going to hurt by not paying your license fee currently are those good people, the day-to-day people, the researchers, the journalists, the security men, the receptionists, so don't let's hurt those people by not paying our TV license, mm. let's say it, yeah. for, the, for the time being. As a vote of, of, of competence in that this will be actually changed and developed to suit us all better. I think the license fee, like everything else, is not fit for purpose. You know, so many people don't look at news anymore on their television. You look at uh, on your phone or on your laptop or somewhere. So I think it has to move towards uh, a content fee, a mm. content charge, that we are provided all this wonderful content in whatever way we choose to consume it or on whatever device we we choose to consume it and we probably need to pay for our content in some way like that and then that could be channeled back into the public service broadcasting. I'm a great believer in public service broadcasting and as I said it's needed more than ever now when we we do have a problem with deciphering what is good news and what is nonsense. So I think we have to find a way to fund it and I think um, they do need to do something very creative about finding a way of us paying and willingly paying you know, for yeah. good service and good content, but finding it in a way that isn't called a TV license based on a set sitting in the corner of your room because that's just gone. So interesting, the future, isn't it? It's all changed for sure. Last couple of points, and just I need to have quick fire answers on these. I'm putting you on the spot, Orla, I apologise. No will the reform happen? Can we be confident now that the reform will happen? That's first. I would say 100%. I think... Um, Kevin Backhurst is a good guy. He's a good track record. I think he will. I think he has his work cut out for him. But I think he'll do a good job. And I think um, there has been such shockwaves sent through the whole system of RTE that all those good people we spoke about, the journalists, the NUJ, they're all going to be policing this and watching this. And I don't think they will. They will leave a stone unturned to get this turned around. And I think we have to. I would hate. To, to have a situation where we wouldn't have public service broadcasting because of this debacle. Mm. But at the same time, there needs to be a lot of honesty. There needs to be quite more questions asked. I mean, to get to the bottom of the um, the Tuberty the, the situation, yeah. we still, despite the seven hours of questioning yesterday, we still don't know mm. why a demand for extra money was made. Yes. Why? And, and, and that why brings... Was that considered all right by yes. either himself or his agent? And, you know, why was it then underwritten by RTE? Who, again, thought that was a good mm. idea to underwrite it? That's the sort of answers to questions. And and just to say, um, you know, there was a lot of sympathy for Ryan Tuberty and Noel Kelly. You know, why why were they put through seven hours of questioning? They weren't put through anything that every TD councillor and minister has been put through by journalists when the shoe was on the other foot. Yes, absolutely. Um, Uh, Look, I have to leave it there, Orla. Uh, Will Ryan Tuberty be back in a word? I can't see a mechanism being found to let him back. Orla, you're great. I appreciate you joining me today. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jerry. Bye-bye. Take care of yourself. Orla Carmody there, communications consultant. She did it today. She did it this morning. Our Louise. She put the butter in the coffee. I looked at the picture and I nearly puked. What was I did. <laughs> did you? No. It looked shocking. It did. It looked um, greasy, didn't it? Like that film of oh, grease it looked, at the top. I can't take boiled tripe. It's now in the same league as boiled tripe and milk and onions for um, me when I looked at it. Yeah, oh, shocking. I, I've never I've never tasted tripe, so I can't comment on that. <laughs> well, but I have to say... It looked rotten, but I did take a few sips and, and it was actually very nice. It's very course, velvety. Of course it's very really nice. Rich. Butter does that. It adds that velvety mm, Kind of like cream in texture. your coffee. Yeah, it is. probably even more but, uh, it thicker. Looked, it looked milkier. like a scum on the top it of it. It did. The picture did. you sent me, it definitely looked. And, and we were talking as well. And it was proper butter. None oh, of your spreadable no, None of that other pint. stuff. No. None of that manufactured stuff. Real butter for our Louise butter. in the coffee. So <laughs> it looks not good. It tastes silky.
it 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 yeah. does taste very nice. Now go. I didn't drink it all because I okay it'll be probably too much. Well then it's like not really really rich. I, I'll cake. I'll resemble that remark. I won't put it in the same league as the tripe and onions. Then it's it's, it's better than that. So we'll we'll just leave it at that for today. It's it's better. Tastes better than that for sure. Anyway, I'm not eating and drinking it. If you're ever kind of stuck for breakfast, just throw a bit of butter into the coffee and you're awake. I'm not a coffee drinker anyway. Okay, so here we're going up to the top of the hour to afterwards. You know we're the most connected generation ever, but the loneliest. Enda Murphy is joining us, but taking us to the two bells. It's the four of us and Mary on your late lunch this Thursday afternoon. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. I've mentioned this a number of times on the show in the past, that we are the most connected generation ever. Yet, loneliness is a huge factor now in life all over the world. And the other day, if you remember, I was telling you about it. It was a UK survey that said the number of people who don't have any friends anymore is on the rise and on the rise significantly. So with those thoughts in mind, who would we talk to? Well, there's one man for us. Enda Murphy, psychotherapist and founder of CME.ie. Good afternoon. Hello, Jerry. How are you? I'm really good. Enda, does that surprise you that the rate of people who don't have any friends at all is really on the rise? No, that's uh, actually I'm surprised that it's only one in ten. Yeah, that's that's the figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would have thought it would actually be higher because, Mm. as you said there in your introduction, yeah, with social media and everything like that, we are the most connected uh, generation of all time, but we are actually the most lonely because when trouble happens, it's not your Facebook friends that will turn up. It's kind of you know, it's it's you know, who has your back? Mm. And if you understand what friendships, friendships is actually a very transactional thing, all right? And I'm talking about neurotypical friendships because friendships amongst neurodiverse people can be very, very different and the needs in friendships is very, very different. But amongst the neurotypical community, friendships are very, very, uh, they're very transactional and it's kind of, you know, it's at where you have friends, you know, will depend on your age, will depend on where you're on life. So like children need friends to learn how life works. They view themselves through the eyes of uh, others. So if everybody thinks I'm okay, therefore I must be okay. Once we get into their 20s, it's all about partnership, you know, between 30s Mm. and 50s. We look for friends to support us with common goals, you know, like kind of, you know, you help me and I'll help you. When we get into later life, you know, we help assess our lives. We're starting to lose people. And, you know, so it kind of really depends where it is. And how we make friends is very different between men and women. All right. And there's a lot of things, you know, like when we're young, you know, we can find ourselves very, very in difficult situations. So like real friends are those who rush in when the rest of the world is rushing out. So you'll find that especially in kind of neurodiverse uh, communities, you'll find that people will make friendships more on qualities in the person rather than personalities. It's not the fact that, you know, I find you entertaining or something like that, but do you have my back when I when, when things go wrong? Mm. So, come, let's start at the young age, and, and I, I read two very interesting articles that you sent to me. Thank you for those mm. that cover, you know, early life and then as we progress through, as you said there, and then to later life. That yeah. case of the children fascinated me with the teacher yeah. in the school. Just tell yeah. our listeners what happened there. Yeah, it was a, a talk I was at, and it, it kind of it was a teacher who was talking to primary school children, our primary school teachers, mm. and she said, "Listen, what I want you to actually do is on, and you know, a last thing on a Friday, I want you to ask children to write a list of the three people they would like to sit beside." throughout the next week or the next few weeks. And of course, everybody says, oh, we couldn't do that. That would be mayhem and they'd be all messing around. I says, no, 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 no. I just want you to get the list. What I want you to do is I want you to look at the uh, the list that's on it. What you're looking for is not the children that are on everybody's list, but you're looking for the children who are on nobody's list because they're the ones who are actually struggling and making friends. And I was gobsmacked about it, you know, and I just asked mm. her, I says, when did you get that idea to do it? And she says, after Columbine. She said, people don't suddenly get an idea in their head and walk into a school with the, an mm. AK-47. What they do is they re- the kind of the isolation and the rejection and everything like that has started out much earlier in early life. And you have to actually address that and teach children how to make friends. Because we have this mad idea that it's an automatic thing. Yes. That if we just put children together, they will all know about what they 
unknow about what it is that they, you know, how to make friends. And children don't know that. Mm. They have to learn how to make friends. They have to learn how, you know, what constitutes a friend. Putting them together just won't actually do it. So we have to start that in very early life. And then when you do that, I think it's a brilliant, that teacher was absolutely brilliant because when the children made the list of their top three or four, it, it became evident then who wasn't on anybody's list and that could be addressed. Is it a fact then that, you know, it starts with young children and that. If you deal with this early in life, is it a good foundation as we move on through the years? Oh, absolutely it will be. Now, yeah. you know, when they say one in ten has absolutely no friends, one in ten children are neurodiverse. What? Just explain now, that neurodiverse for listeners. Now, neurodiverse is if you have ADHD, if you're on the autism spectrum, okay. all right, if you have kind of attention deficit disorder, or if you're dyspraxia or dyslexia or anything like that. Children view themselves by how they appear to others. So what they will do is, is that if all the other children can do things, then and I can't do it, then there must be something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And the analogy I can use is, is that if you go back, say, 200 years, you know, where, and you're a woman in a, a male-dominated world, where the way you should be is dictated through a male eyes, then you never learn how to be a woman. All you do is the more you try and think and act like a man, the more abnormal a woman you're going to feel and vice versa. All right. So when you're doing this, is that, you know, what makes people isolated is that it's not usually, you know, that they are actively rejected, but that they just don't feel they belong. Mm. So if if you and I and Jerry are talking and we say, well, listen, come on, let's go off to the match here and we have a great bit of crack. But if you're a woman and don't realise that a woman thinks and acts and does completely different, then you'll think, well, if I don't get invited to the match or if I don't enjoy the football as much as they seem to be enjoying the football, then there must be something wrong with me. And that isolation then starts going backwards and backwards and backwards until the person is eventually in this isolation world on their own. And as anybody who has ever been lonely will tell you, loneliness has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're in company or on your own. It's a state of mind in your own head. And Enda, how do you then address that and help somebody like that that feels that in their head or their mind? Well, the first thing you have to do is, what can I do? Mm. You know, for myself, if I'm the one and lonely, the first thing is loneliness is normal. Aloneness is when you're on your own and you accept yourself. Loneliness is when you're on your own, but you don't accept yourself. So if you ask, what is it about me I'm not accepting? Or what is this little voice in the back of my head, what we call the pathological critic? What is that saying? So, you know, and to overcome, so if you first identify that, and sometimes you need a bit of professional help like that, okay? And then to overcome loneliness, we have to have a sense of belonging to something. No matter how you view it, you know, you have a lifetime's experience, all right, that are saying. So, you know, especially with elderly people, because I find that, you know, the loneliness goes through. And, it, it, you know, as you lose people in your life, mm. you know, unless you can no matter how much friends you had in your 30s and 40s, you might reach your 60s or 70s and suddenly realise you've nobody there. So what you have to do is, is that, you know, you have to kind of, you know, understand what you can actually do about your own loneliness and it's the unconditional acceptance of yourself. Now, once you've actually done that, you need a sense of belonging. So if you're, say, an elderly farmer, you might get it through the IFA, you might get it through the Farm Families Organisation, you, you might get it through the Men's Shed. And the reason the Men's Shed was so successful is women communicate face to face. Their right side of their brain and their left side of the brain are connected. So they think and they feel at the same thing. So it's very common for them to talk. Men are either talking or they're feeling. They can't do both at the same time. So men will communicate, not face to face, they'll communicate shoulder to shoulder. So how men will communicate is by a common activity. And through that common activity, they get this sense of belonging and they don't have to talk. Yes. So men will regularly, we think, oh, you know, they need to talk about their emotions. I'm a psychotherapist. I'm probably the world's worst at talking about his emotions. Because as a typical man, when I'm hurting, I will, fo- I will focus on getting to the solution. And then maybe at some stage in the future, I might look back and think about the journey of how I got there. But quite often... I'm completely unaware of what it is I'm actually thinking or feeling. And then, you know, we tend to, you know, women will tend to kind of, you know, go quiet if they're hurting. So if they see their man 
going quiet, they would say, what's wrong? And he might be just trying to think of how in God's name did Mayo lose again this year? (laughs) (laughs) Or what am I going to eat in the fridge? Because he goes quiet when he's trying to process something. But of course, she then thinks he's hurting because, well, that's what I would do if I was hurting. So, you know, what communities can do as well is that, you know, if you're trying to sort, is that people don't need advice. They need connection. And that connection can sometimes just be sharing a silent moment, sitting beside them at the mart, you know, doing something with them, just calling around and watching TV with one of your elderly parents. All right. You know, empathy, you know, and then understanding where they are actually at. So they're not under any pressure to perform, but you're walking the journey. And then what the communities can do is is that we have lost us in, in, in Western society is the wisdom of age. Because in every other society throughout, the, the elderly people were the ones who actually guided the younger generation. Now you reach your, your kind of majority, you reach your retirement, and that's it, you're out and there's somebody else, and they don't want to be listened to somebody else. So, you know, you were not living... You know, like kind of humanity is not living with 10,000 years experience. They have lived 70 years experience 70 times because we're getting the same experience. So, you know, so what communities can do is they can actually encourage their older people to share their wisdom with younger people. So in the likes of the Irish Country Women's Association, the likes of the Men's Shed, you know, mums who have reared 10 kids of their own, they have a wealth of actual wisdom and lifetimes of experience that they can share with some single mum. So they can get involved there. Men can, you know, if they're retired and they're elderly farmers, they can maybe help some young farmer trying to set up. Not that they're doing the work for them, but just maybe able to share the experience. And yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like. And it's that connection that when we make that connection with other people, then the loneliness resolves. And it's not down to the actions you at the kind of the, the activity you actually do. It's just that connection. And uh, superb as usual. You've just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on every word here that you've been saying to me. And just one last thing before we go, you just really nearly touched on it there. People who are heading to retirement and that, who are busy with their lives all the time, and suddenly life stops. It, it's very important for people in that bracket to have a purpose and a meaning every day beyond formal work. Exactly. And I will quote what my boss actually said. Own, Dr. Owen Clark from Navin, if he's listening in, he, this is what he actually said to me when he was retiring. And I said, God, Owen, you know, so I couldn't imagine you just going out in the golf club. He says, I'm not retiring, Enda. It's just that there's so many other things I want to do with my life while I can still do them that I can't do if I stay working in this particular job. And I remember that to this day. Life is a journey. It's not a destination. And then I'll finish on this one. In the words of PJ Marath, when he was asked, you know, did he miss? Do you remember PJ yes. Marath? He was Charlie Hyde. Absolutely. Predator. He says, people should reinvent themselves every 10 years. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, it's been uh, uplifting, inspiring talking to you again today. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. You're- you're more than welcome. Thanks, Jerry. Take care, Enda. That's Enda Murphy there, psychotherapist and founder of SeeMe.ie. That's S-W-E-M-E.ie. A wonderful, wonderful guy there. If you take bits and pieces from that chat there, uh, you will be fine, I have to say. One in ten, it's higher end of things in terms of people who don't have friends. Connect. Make the connection. Take the messages from Enda's words of wisdom this afternoon. Stereophonics. Handbags and glad rags on your late lunch this afternoon. That goes back, that song actually goes back to 1967. It was written by Mike Dabo. You might remember him. He was the lead singer with Manfred Mann. Do you remember them? Manfred Mann's Earth Band. It was first recorded by uh, Chris Farlow in 67. Rod Stewart's version was 1969. And that was Stereophonics in 2001. Reached number four in the UK charts. And of course, the theme from, Louise? The theme from what TV programme? It's not Friday, it's Thursday. Will I keep it till tomorrow? Yeah. I'll keep it till tomorrow. I haven't you don't know, do you not? No. 
There's your TV team. First time I've ever done it. I'm giving you the song on Thursday. So your homework overnight. That is the theme from a TV show. I don't want the answer today, but it's our TV theme for Friday and late lunch. That's it. It's a bit of bother this evening. It's not Green Hill anyway. (laughs) It's not Green Hill for sure. Have you many handbags and glad rags yourself? I've too many handbags. Have you? Yeah. Are you a handbag woman? I just accumulated a lot over the years. Have you? Yeah. Ah, but well. I tend to kind of stick with one until it falls apart <laughs> and then I go for another one because it's too much hassle to take out everything from one handbag and move it to the other one. Women and their handbags. Everything's in it. Everything. Uh-huh. I have to say women and their handbags. I've never seen that like in a searching where, where's my keys? Where's this? Where's that? Going through all this room and stuff. Actually I was in the, in the supermarket um, yesterday and those now that I think of it I got a kill her. There was a woman in front of me and I I don't, still don't know what she was looking for in the handbag. But we ever had, you know, she was paying for things. Oh, and the, the more panicked you get, God the more you can And I said, with this woman, please, ever, give her the stuff for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell her to go. Get out of the, get, will you get out of me Probably way, looking please? looking for a club card or something, was she? I don't know the she? hell what Lottery she was looking numbers. for bag and the size of it and reaching down into it and oh in the name of St. Christopher I don't know what you are like with your handbags us boys it's very simple you have either a few pounds in your pocket or a card in your arse pocket or something like that well, I see a lot of I'd say a lot of women if they went deep, dug deep down into their handbags they'd find like little dinky cars or something to keep the kids quiet <laughs> uh, leftover remnants of some kind of bar of chocolate that they gave the child or yes, that, that yeah. was handed to them a, stu- a lollipop lollipop well, stuck to the bottom you know what you know, that's very true and you know the child is 23 now yeah. <laughs> yeah. that stuff is still in the handbag at this stage I, I know yeah. what you're talking about I know exactly <laughs> <laughs> and your glad rags of course everyone has their glad rags uh, you know what are glad rags they're the, the, the go to things in your wardrobe I'd say yes yes mm. the things you know for going out well, I would say glad rags are more like ball gowns and stuff no? oh would you yeah perhaps you know? but you know you're the woman for retaining the vintage from yesteryear <laughs> the queen of it you must have many glad rags when, vintage when glad you think rags. about it yeah and uh, rags you, being the operative word <laughs> no 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 <laughs> please uh, classical pieces I would say but you know what I'm ta- t- saying Never mind the handbag. Do women always have a spare new handbag? Going back to the handbags that they have put aside, you know, that the day will come when the handles mm. fall off this and they're ready to go with a new one. Do you think most women have, you know, one yes, in reserve? absolutely. Very good. I'll actually bring you in a handbag I have at home. Um, and it's actually all right, peeling. Dog. It's peeling. The, pa- the paint or whatever the in- is actually peeling and I refuse to throw it out. Oh, listen, you're all right, Ducky. You are awful, but I I'm like you. i it you. Emery. It <laughs> God, I was getting a bit panicky there for a minute. I thought I'd be in the news myself with me handbag. They're not called man bags. <laughs> what? Are they not called man bags? Never heard of them. They were a thing. I think are they, they still are a thing, yeah. Bum bags when you went on holidays. The bum bag. Do you remember the bum bag? Yeah. You know, the passport in it and the traveller's checks. Do you they remember the bum bags? I don't think they're called bum bags. No, I think they're called. We, we talked about this all right. You're mm. right there before. Something else. No, I don't have them. I have a fishing bag. Oh, I love my fishing bag. That's for sure. Loads, loads of pockets. Oh, loads of pockets. Lots of treasures in that for sure. And you don't let anyone near your fishing bag. Oh no, all the secrets no. are in there. If no you find pops are if you, no, no <laughs> maggots maybe, you know, <laughs> stale worms and things like that. But you don't let anyone near it because they'll find your secrets when it comes to fishing. Anyway, next up on Late Lunch, I'm delighted to be talking to her again. She has another hit on her hands. She's from Kells in County Meath, based in the UK. Olivia Kiernan is with me next. Play Dead For Me, Killer and Me, If Looks Could Kill. And last time we spoke, it was about the murder box and she's back with a new one called The End of Us from Kells and County Me. Joining us from the UK today, Olivia Kiernan is back. Hi, Olivia. Hello, Jerry. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you with us. I'm just thinking here, the shivers are running up and down my spine when I mentioned the titles of the books. Was life like that in Kells? Was it, was it on a knife edge? <laughs> Lots of dark inspiration from Kells indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you're back with this new one. I was just thinking about the last time we spoke was August 21 and it was such a different world because you and I were talking about it at the time. We were just emerging from COVID. You hadn't been home for a while. Did you manage to get back since? 
I did, yeah. So I went back to the last time I was back was last summer, and I stay with my my sister in Kells, and uh, it's great because you know I've got a little daughter now, so um, it's lovely for her to see her cousins, and we we visited some of the old haunts that we used to um, go to in the summer when we were kids, and headed to Trim Castle and and places like that. So it's it's really it's lovely. I'm afraid I'm I'm very rose tinted glasses when mm. I go back now, so I love visiting all those old places that we used to go to a lot when we were children. So yeah. it's lovely. Now why not? Uh, fond memories indeed, and introducing your daughter to those places and and your history as well. You did mention mentioned to me last time that you were working on a new one and it was this one the end of us and you did say to me there would be no detective frankie sheehan gone <laughs> gone for good never i hope not i hope to get back to her maybe the book after um next one i think mm. um we'll revisit frankie and um i think when you're working on a series for a while i think most series writers every now and then you like to kind of break out and have a bit of a palate cleanser um, to kind of explore different um, character voices mm. and see what, stretch your wings a little bit in that way. But I've already got ideas percolating for another Frankie book down the line. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Obviously, if reader demand is there, then we'll, we'll definitely be returning. <laughs> oh, for sure. What about this TV thing with Victoria Smurfett uh, going back to the previous works have been optioned for TV? Where is that? So at the moment, um, yeah, Victoria Smurfett's production company have optioned the Frankie Sheehan series, mm. and which means that they develop it for, um, they develop what's called a treatment to take to various networks. So we're in that process now um, of developing that treatment. TV TV can take quite a long time. Um, you could be waiting for years for something to happen and then or then you could get a call the next day and and boom you're off you go so Mm. it's kind of one of those lovely feathers in the cap to have and really exciting and obviously brilliant to have someone like Victoria Smurfett on board who she'd like to cast herself as Frankie as well I think she'd be an amazing Frankie Sheehan Mm. she'd be perfect for it and so we just we just have to wait and see what happens there and um, if we get greenlit somewhere Yes, please God, that does happen. It's exciting times indeed. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see it developed into a series for television or even something more? Um, Let's talk about this one, The End of Us. And may I say in general sense, you couldn't like the characters in this book, could you? (laughs) I know that was the challenge, Jerry, was to try and um, kind of create a a novel with some, let's say, characters with some... um, morally um, questionable Mm. (laughs) virtues or values and um but with miles i mean i think even despite that you end up kind of rooting for him i think because you can you don't necessarily have to like characters but you need to understand where they're coming from and there's kind of an outrageousness in the plot with what the characters get up to with um attempting to commit life insurance fraud i think that there's a kind of dark humour, I think, to a lot of the things that they get up to. And and I feel certainly in, with a lot of Irish fiction and crime in crime fiction itself, that that's probably one of the appealing um, factors with a lot of Irish fiction. Is there is this, I think we're good at doing slightly dark humour. Mm. And I think humour carries a lot of weight. So even if you have characters, perhaps that you're not 100% rooting for, if there's um, a kind of humorous slant to it. You, you'll go, you're happy to go along with what they get up to. Mm. And it's uh, timely we speak about it this week because it is based in the leafy suburbs of Wimbledon where the uh, tennis is on at the moment. Miles and Lana, just for listeners, Miles and Lana Butler, they're a doctor and a psychiatrist. They live in a wonderful home in Wimbledon uh, and they're highly successful, but they get into financial trouble that's all I'd say and this glamorous couple called Gabriel Gabriel and Holly Wright move into uh, the area they live in and they become friends there was a connection there in the past and uh, you know it's revealed as they meet uh, more frequently that the uh, couple Miles and Lana are in trouble and a suggestion is made around as you say insurance fraud my god I'll tell you you do the twists and turns like nobody else because ironically you hold this right to the end of the book it, that's that's a skill in itself, isn't it? 
<laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Well, that's what you try to do when yeah. you write a thriller, I think, is just to try and um, create a story that's propulsive and that where um, when the twists come, they feel like they they are naturally organic from the story, but at the same time surprising. So, mm. um, yeah, it's it's hard it's hard work, but that's the excitement in writing, and hopefully, when when you readers are reading it too. Do you have that vision in your mind? You know, as you as the story, the characters, the plots develop, the various plots. Do you know where the landing is in helicopter parlance? Do you know where you're going to land at the end? Um, I had a good sense of yeah. how I would like to, and and this is the case with all my novels. Um, you're kind of planting little clues along the way, but you're not always quite a hundred percent sure where they might come in. Mm. And as the kind of story gathers pace, for me as a writer, I mean, some writers really plan this stuff out in detail ahead of time, but I kind of like to just scatter out a lot of clues and see how the the story organically comes to that point. And then maybe about two thirds of the way in when real decisions have to be made of which elements of the plot will begin to take over, um, I will kind of stand back and look at the plot and see how how would it be, how could I make the best out of what I've put in place at the moment? And so um, and I like to write like that because I hope it gives it an energy to the to the prose that um, and to the storytelling that maybe transfers a little bit into into the reader's mind as well. Um, but as you know, like once once you're finished your draft, you're always editing anyway. Yeah. So once you've kind of made those decisions, you go back and you're kind of looking at it more cynically and, and trying to either hide things um, or maybe build on them so that you can um, create the biggest impact for the reader. The edit is the devil, isn't it? Even in this game, I'm in here when you're trying to give yeah. something and you're trying to condense it and you, you go back to it several times. You pull out, you put back in. I know what you're talking about. It's a, it's a real trying time for sure. Can I say this to you do backstabbing betrayal deceit <laughs> that nobody can be trusted like no one else may i say <laughs> it must be all the practice i have in real life jerry <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> oh no um, no <laughs> no i think um you know they're just i think that with these type of characters you get to explore maybe um impulses that we'd never socially or even morally ourselves allow ourselves to um explore mm. and you're kind of on a ride with these characters and and there's a, there's a fun in that you know and and there's a recklessness with it particularly with the theme of life insurance fraud and i did a lot of research around particular cases with life insurance fraud maybe some of your listeners are familiar with some of them i don't know if um they might be familiar with that. Uh, I think there was a drama on TV a couple of years ago, The Thief, The Wife and The Canoe, um, which was the John Darwin and Anne Darwin case yes. where he um, faked his his death on a, on a canoe and he, he was actually alive. And now, in most of those cases, they they get away with it in the initial kind of instance. And it's usually just they just can't help themselves. Something comes up further down the line that's not even fully related to the initial fraud. And and that's what trips them up. And I think with with this novel was kind of capturing some of that um, kind of tendency for the people involved and not being able to resist doing one more kind of crime, if you like. And, and that obviously takes the plot into um, more kind of intense action towards the end of the novel. Mm. The uh, move away from Frankie Sheehan is significant for you. And uh, I, I was reading, I think, in the Sunday Independent last week, they reviewed you there as well. And you got great credit, you know, from having a run a series with a central character now to bring this one standalone. And I'm sure it will bring an awful lot more people to you because I think we spoke the last time with the uh, previous book, The Murder Box. You know, you could read that as well, actually, and then go back, which I'm sure people yeah. did. But this standalone for you is important too isn't it because it brings readers to you that will investigate previous works 
We hope, yeah, you hope so. Yeah. And it's a different style of book. You know, it's a thriller. Um, the, it's a male perspective character the whole way through. Um, so, yeah, there's a freshness to it that might entice some new readers who may then go back to to kind of investigate the Frankie Sheehan books as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's always a really nice plus with, when you write a standalone is that you might open up um, your readership a little bit more. Mm. How are things in the UK? How are you getting on? We get the news, you know, over here. God, there's a lot going on at the BBC. I was talking about it earlier on the show with uh, Hugh and uh, well, Hugh Edwards, and we have our own Tuberty um, soap opera going on here in the Doll. But in general terms, how is life over there post Brexit and uh, with Boris out of the picture? Yeah, not too bad for me anyway, you know, yourself when you're kind of, I guess, one of the, the little people, you kind of just keep your head down and keep um, keep working, you know, it's, um, but I think for, for one of the biggest um, side effects of pandemic and um, uh, is obviously the cost of living crisis is mm. really hard over here and for a lot of people and definitely when you go shopping now and um, you're, you kind of, items that perhaps you mightn't have thought about before like just basics like your butter or whatever you kind of have a pause you just think oh it's like you've been punched to the stomach when you see the mm. see the price and obviously as a writer you're aware of that for for people who may be purchasing books and um so i'm i'm, I'm pleased with the with the um, prices of 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 um the end of us as well it's it hasn't the, the cost hasn't changed from yes. my other novels. So that's really, I feel good in some ways. You don't want readers having to make those kind of decisions um, mm. when they get in store. But yeah, I think that's probably the big thing that helps or for people, whatever goes on with presenters and all that, you know, really your day-to-day life is yes. affected by things like the cost of living crisis and um, and that's a very real thing and I'm sure it's it's similar in Ireland mm. as well so mm. um, let's hope that that um, begins to lift I think soon because I think it's going to be get get really tough for people otherwise yeah it's good to think of your readers in that vein as well too I have to say yes yeah, the same on this side uh, the weekly shop and of course interest rates mortgages all that type of thing as well yeah. we have an awful lot in common with this little Irish sea between us and now in and out of Europe and all that type of nonsense. Anyway, that's for another day. The important uh, point of today is Olivia Kiernan is back with a thriller. The End of Us it's called. It's available everywhere now. I thoroughly enjoyed it, I have to say. Well done to you and look forward to the next one. I know you're working away on that already and thank you so much again for joining me today. Good luck with everything. Thanks, Jerry. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's the lovely Olivia Kiernan from Kells in County Mead, based in the UK, with her new book. You're at Late Lunch on LMFM Radio this Thursday afternoon. Still to come on the show. No more disposable cups in Killarney. What are you talking about, Mrs. on this? And Killarney, no more disposable cups. What's the problem in Killarney? Um, It's become the first town in Ireland, I think, to ban, ban them. From the town. They're banning disposable cups. Oh, I see. You know so, the coffee yeah, cups yeah, and yeah, people yeah, throw yeah, them yeah. away. So you have to good. bring your reusable cup or mug with you to get your coffee now. I think most people do, don't they? Yeah. I think people do a have a favourite. Now, there's still the takeaway ones. There's no doubt about that. So Killarney are bidding to be the first in Ireland. What if you're a tourist? Well, I'm sure you can just go into like a deals or something like that and buy a cup. Where? Deals. Like a, a shop in, in the town in Killarney. Oh, come and on, come on, Louise. Cup. Come on, Louise. I'm a tourist. Yeah. What do we do with tourists? Killarney I'm now tourist, are... You're not you're, silly. You're talking about the, the kings of tourism and queens in Killarney. They know how to do it better than anybody else. They've been doing it ad infinitum. I just think there was a tourist if I'm there. No, I won't. I'm, I'm not going to buy... I am me and Nick going into buy... In de- deals, never mind. Deals on wheels. I'd say uh, there'll be loyalty... Um, you know, deals that if you bring in your own cup, you get 50 cent off a cup of coffee. So, what I mean, about, it's worth it. What about this one I'm drinking out of now? Can you not go into a place and they have these cups? Yeah, if you're staying there, yeah. you're leaving, they won't let mm. you bring it out with you. No, well, you'll have to drink it on the spot. I think mm. it's a bit of an issue. Just cross my mind there for tourists anyway. Anyway, if you're coming to Ireland, uh, Falls Ireland or uh, Tourism Ireland or whatever they're called, will be saying, bring your own mug. Is that it? Or, or you will be a mug. <laughs> 
I love that. They'll want that strap line. Five, four, three, two, one. Counting down the top five songs from this week of yesteryear. And today it's the number two from this very week in 1985. And I think in Top 5 Countdown, this is the first time I've actually featured an instrumental. Yes, an electronic instrumental at that. And when I tell you the instruments that were used to make this sound by Harold Faltermeyer. He's the man who created Axel F. Axel F, we're going to play in a moment. Faltermeyer recorded the song using five instruments. So here's a little uh, lesson in instruments for myself, primarily, and for you too. A Roland Jupiter provided a distinctive super saw lead. A Moog modular synthesizer, number 15, provided the bass. A Roland JP... JX3P provided cord stab brasses. A Yamaha DX7, sounds like a motorbike, was used for the marimba sound. And a Lindrum was the drum programming. So there's a bit of very useful information for you behind the making of Axel F by a German musician, Harold Faltermeyer. It was a big hit all over the world. It was. But uh, in the UK, well, it didn't climb to top spot. It's another number two, which we do on the Tuesday here on Late Lunch. Anyway, here it is. The number two from this week, this very week in 1985. It's Axel F. Number two from this week in 1985, Axel F by Harold Faltermeyer and the theme from the 1984 film Beverly Hills Cop starring Eddie Murphy. But our Louise has come up with a different version. Let's have a listen. Bing, bing, What's going on? I absolutely love that version of the song. That's actually... Were you thinking that that was the version I was going to play today, was it? Yeah, I remember I was trying to think of the Crazy Frog. That's who it's by. Crazy Frog. Yeah, all the kids used to love Crazy Frog. <laughs> I love it. It's a much livelier version. I give you that one there. Anyway, uh, the uh, two... <laughs> two on Tuesday we can play your version of that one of the weeks as well I really <laughs> like that song I do indeed good, well, good on you let's head to Gibraltar now it's hot in Gibraltar and it's going to be even hotter this evening when Dundalk take the field in the Europa Conference League first qualifying round and they're playing a local side there they're called Bruno's Magpies when I heard the name I thought it was a refuge for magpies then I said to myself is that a pub or something that they come from? In fact, they were founded in a pub, but they've come a long way. Adrian Taff, they sure have. They sure have, yeah. In Europe for the second successive season, Bruno's Magpies, they're a team and a club very much on the up here in um, in Gibraltar. I say here in Gibraltar, we're actually just over the border in uh, Malaga. We're about a 10-minute walk from the border into Gibraltar. And because it, it's significantly cheaper to stay here, uh, Gibraltar is a British territory and um, over here with the Euro and stuff like that, it's a lot cheaper to stay in um, in Malaga. But uh, yeah, they're, they're very definitely a club on the rise in Gibraltarian football. They won the National Cup um, in 2023. They finished third in the league, the highest ever finish. The manager who led them to that has gone, mind you. They've been taken over by an ex-Sevilla uh, player. Um an elderly gentleman who's um, in charge of them before. I say elderly, he's in his 60s, not that old, Jerry. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but a lot older than the younger manager that they had before. But they have a, they have a, a lot of, uh, they have a number of English players playing with them. They have a lot of Spanish fourth, ex-fourth tier players, you know, so lower level Spanish players, but still players who I imagine will be very technical and will know how to hold on to the ball. And that's going to be very, very, very important this evening, uh, given the weather and the heat. We were out at the pitch yesterday a few of the journalists out at the stadium just talking to Stephen O'Donnell and it is suffocating heat down there now I have to say you know it's it was in the certainly mid-30s if not a little bit higher there is a nice wind but it's a it's a warm wind so I don't know exactly what, what sort of respite it offers you know for the players um, and you just feel sorry for players like you know Nathan Shepard and Greg Slaughter, fairer players like that who um, you know it could be it could be very difficult for some of those lads you'd imagine you know 
so the heat is certainly going to be a factor. The pitch, grass pitch, mm. artificial pitch, what? Uh, artificial pitch. So, uh, like Gibraltar is very small. It's I think the, it only has about a population of about thirty six thousand people, and there I think there are around twelve teams in the top division of Gibraltar of the Gibraltar League, and they all play on that pitch, and it's an artificial surface, so it's something that won't bother them talk all that much, you know. But you know, <laughs> if this was played at you know twenty degrees somewhere, you know what I mean, this game would probably be a guinea in some respects, you know, but. Lincoln Red Imps, who are the league champions here, they played um, Carabag a few nights ago, and the Carabag won that one by two goals to one. But we're we're lucky enough to win it, and um, it's a, it, the heat is it going to be a, definitely a factor. They beat Crusaders here from the Northern Irish League last year as well. You know who again you'd expect a team from the Northern Irish League to be better than aside from Gibraltar, but the heat is a huge equaliser. You know. Yeah, so the heat of factor this evening as the game uh, moves through the 90 minutes and, and beyond. Come back to uh, Magpies because they're a young club. They're only formed, I think, 2013. Uh, they're only 10 years on the go and they've made massive progress in that time. When we mention Magpies, black and white comes to mind. Uh, what colours do they wear? Will they clash with Dundalk? They would clash with Dundalk. They wear black and white stripes. And the reason for that is that their first manager... And you can tell I've done my research, Jerry. The first manager was a Newcastle fan. And uh, part of his insistence when they started the club, if he was going to manage the club, was that they would reflect that. And that's why they're called Magpies, and that's why they wear uh, black and white. So, yeah, Dundalk will most likely be wearing a change trip this evening. Um, but, uh, yeah, they have a... Uh, Dean Holdsworth is their technical director, and their chairman is... Ex of, is the ex-chairman of Watford. So they have... Uh, they have, you know, real links to pedigree, you know, uh, personnel uh, mm. within their ranks as well, you know. What about uh, support for Dundalk tonight? Have many made the trip? Yeah, well, uh, we believe so. We're expecting anywhere between, I would say, 200, 250, I'd imagine, you know. It's like, the, it's just, as I said, over the border. So you just walk over the border into Gibraltar. It's about 15 minutes from from La Linea, where most people are staying here. There's actually a bar here called the Liffey Bar that's owned by a couple of people from Dundalk and uh, someone from Dublin. And uh, so a lot of Dundalk supporters have sighted themselves around here. And it's just a 15-minute walk over the border into Gibraltar. So they're expecting there'll be maybe somewhere between 200 and 250 there. So Dundalk will be very well supported. They're going to be sitting out in the sun, though. There's absolutely no cover where they're going to be. Going to be sitting out there in maybe 36 degree of heat. So that's going to be difficult. That 15-minute walk over the border is an interesting one as well because... If you follow the roads, it would take you 40 minutes to get to the Victoria Stadium. But the walk that you take to get to the stadium that makes it so short is over the airport runway in Gibraltar. You're actually allowed to cross over the, the airport runway, runway. Can you imagine doing that in Ireland? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, there have been famous court cases for people on runways for different reasons here, for yeah. sure. But it's nice to hear yeah. that it, it shortens the journey, especially in that heat. But look, let's call a spade a yeah. spade here. Dundalk are expected to negotiate this tie over the two legs. I'm sure you expect that too. Yeah, I think over the two legs are the most important words there. You know, I, I don't think a draw would be the worst thing in the world here this evening, you know. Um, Dundalk, no doubt about it, have the better players, have the better pedigree players. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I wouldn't be expecting the tie necessarily to be won here this evening, you know. Especially when you you look at what they did with Crusaders last year. You look at Carabag struggling here this week. Um, you know, you just mightn't expect it to be done tonight. But across the two legs, when they get them back to Oriel next week, you'd expect the, the job to be done. Third Irish side to travel away, and Derry are away as well. So that's the four Irish teams in Europe all away from home. The first two results haven't gone uh, League of Ireland club, uh, club's way. Uh, Shamrock Rovers terrible defeat at home the other night to the Icelandic mm. side. And Pat's looking to get a very late goal through Mark Doyle last evening to leave it 2 1 uh, returning to Dublin. But we could do a result for the league and for the coefficient. It's, it's funny, there was a lot of talk when the draws were made for these rounds for the Irish clubs that this might be a year where all four clubs progress into the next round you know and a bit of confidence around that to be honest you know but um, yeah the Shamrock Rovers defeat set the tone for the week that's going to be difficult for them to turn around at least St. Patrick's Athletic with that late goal against Dudelange have given them a chance in that game you know so um, yeah you'll be hoping for the coefficient because it is very important if if the Irish League can go up a couple of places I think you need to get into the top 30 in UEFA 
and it gives your chance your your clubs uh, it gives another club a chance of getting into the Europa League level uh, qualifiers and if they get into that level then they can afford to lose a game and still drop into Europa Conference League so it it gives it gives a club a greater opportunity to progress in Europe every year you know it certainly does you're online with the game live tonight what is uh, kickoff time out there with you it's five o'clock is it Five o'clock out here with us, six o'clock with you guys. Um, bad news for the dog, injury to Keith Ward was confirmed yesterday. He's got a medial uh, ligament injury that's going to keep him out for um, definitely a couple of months at the very minimum. But good news for us is that Keith has agreed to come on co-commentary this evening and he's a great character, you know. I'm really looking forward to working with him tonight. Absolutely. Well, I've been waiting for this mm. final line in the interview. One for sorrow, two for joy against the Magpies. What will it be? It'll be a, a mix of both. It might be. It could be a draw, to be honest. You know, <laughs> you're the best man for the fence that I ever met. But anyway, we'll see how it unfolds <laughs> this evening. Adrian Tab, yeah. thank you so much. Take care in the heat. Good luck to Dundalk and all the supporters this evening. And do join us here on LMFM Radio, Adrian and co-commentator, bringing you all the live action from six o'clock. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Jerry. Yes, Adrian Taft there uh, getting ready to bring us live commentary and that is a 5 o'clock kick-off Irish time. 5 o'clock Irish time on the LMFM platforms here. That game live Dundalk against Bruno's Magpies and we wish them well. Eddie Caffrey's on his way with the drive here on LMFM Radio. We'll be back with the final late lunch of the week tomorrow at 1.30. Have a nice evening. See you then. The Late Lunch, brought to you by Blackstone Motors, Drogheda, Dundalk and Cavan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.